Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Milk Street to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. One of the most wonderful experiences I had as I was traveling through Iran is I would be on buses or on trains and the person next to me or the person in front of me would maybe get out a a big bag of, of oranges and just start peeling off the segments and then just offering it around to everybody. And it was almost this recognition that yeah we we might not know each other but we're traveling on the same road um, literally and metaphorically that was yasmin khan she's author of the saffron tales persian food always tells a story from sweet to bitter from sour oranges to dried dates from cooling yogurt to caramelized onions it's indeed the joy of hospitality all right there on the plate now before i interview yasmin let's check in with reina javeri about this week's Milk Street recipe. 
Hi, Raina. How are you? Hi, Chris. This week, it's Tapas Week here at Mill Street. And I have to say something about Tapas, which is that that's why you go to a restaurant, <laughs> because they usually take a lot of time to repair and you want lots of different flavors. But we did come across a particular recipe that starts with a pork tenderloin and some spice, and it was actually really easy to make. This recipe is called pinchos morunos in Spanish, and it actually originated in the Basque region of Spain, and you'll love this. The loose translation of its name is Moorish bites impaled on thorns or small pointed sticks. You get that out of two words? Well, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Okay. It's a rich language. <laughs> it's a rich language, I guess so. <laughs> but this is a, it's an easy dish, and it's a dish of seared pork tenderloin that's rubbed with a blend of spices, garlic, herbs, and olive oil. But we streamlined it, of course, for our version, because it was fussing with skewers. We didn't want to do that. And so for our spice blend, we use cumin, coriander, and black pepper, and a little bit of smoked paprika. And then we take the spice blend and massage it into the pork tenderloin, which we cut into about one and a half inch pieces, and then let it sit for about a half hour. Okay, so how do you cook it? So usually this gets grilled traditionally, but we are taking that fussy bit out and we're cooking this in a large skillet over high heat with just a tablespoon of olive oil. And we want to make sure we add the meat in a single layer and cook without moving so that it gets deeply brown on one side, about three minutes, and then another couple minutes on the other side. And this is a part you're going to like too. We're going to finish this pork with a drizzle of honey, which works really well with the other spices that are in this. So this isn't complicated. This is about 10 minutes of actual work, which is about what I'd want to spend on a Tuesday night. That's right, Chris. You can actually make this into a weeknight meal by serving it over rice or in lettuce cups or over a pile of steamed or roasted vegetables. Raina, thank you. You're welcome. You can get our recipe for pork tapas on our website, milkstreetradio.com. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Melton. She's also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm so happy to be here. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is April from Seattle, Washington. How are you? Great. How are you? You sound great. I like that enthusiasm. (laughs) So how can, or maybe we can, how can we help you? Well, I am going to a wedding, and it is a potluck wedding. And so I was not sure, and I don't know if I can bring like a crock pot, if I can plug anything in. So I was thinking of something that's delicious and, you know, a little on the more, you know, exciting side, but also that can be brought to a wedding and that can also travel. We have to travel about 45 minutes to an hour to get there. So I was wondering if you guys had any ideas. Um, I would say meat pie, pizza rustica, for example, which is filled with beets and cheese and things with a nice sour cream pastry crust, uh, serve room temperature sliced. Empanadas would be nice. You could also do a savory pie like the English do. So I I think any kind of meat and vegetables with a crust or pastry around it. Like a crostata, one of those freeform. A freeform one would work. Which is more of a pie dough, less of a pizza dough, yeah. All of those are served at room temperature. And, you know, you don't have to go down to the coal mine with your meat pie, but it would work at a wedding. And what time of year is the wedding? This month. Okay. So there is a wonderful recipe from a friend of mine, Jeannie Anderson. You make fresh breadcrumbs. I don't know why. Now I might do panko, but I like this recipe. So it's three to one fresh breadcrumbs, and you make them by pulsing in food processor. And the one part is grated Parmigiano Reggiano. So you make the breadcrumb Mm. mix. You can throw some herbs in if you want, like chopped fresh oregano, some chopped parsley. Meanwhile, you take a couple sticks of butter, you add minced garlic, and you melt it. You take cut-up chicken, skin on. This seems very counterintuitive. You dip it in the cooled garlic butter, cooled only so you don't burn your hands, and then you roll it in the breadcrumb mixture, and then you put it on a sheet pan lined with parchment, and you bake it at 350, you know, for 30 minutes until the chicken's cooked. And then you can serve it at room temperature. It's fantastic at room temperature. It's fattening as can be. And you would say, why shouldn't I remove the skin? For some reason, you shouldn't. And it's the moistest, most moist chicken I've ever eaten. So three to one Mm. breadcrumbs to Parmesan cheese. Add some herbs. You know, a lot of uh, melted butter. I use the unsalted because the Parmesan cheese is salty. Lots and lots of garlic. Hopefully, eh. Nobody else is kissing oh, yeah. anybody else except the bride. So, <laughs> what, 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 weddings? There's a lot of kissing going on at oh, weddings. Chris, the weddings I've been to. I don't know. Come Chris. on, you behave yourself. <laughs> 
I didn't mean me. Well, of I course, yes. <laughs> so, so your your choice is butter garlic chicken or pizza rustica. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not bad. I love both. Amazing the, options. There's Thank a book. So um, I don't know if you can still get it called "Cooking Great Meals Every Day," and it has a yeah. pizza rustica recipe that I've made 25 yeah. times, and it's perfect for yeah. this. It's easy to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, excellent! Thank you guys so much. Well, have a Our fun pleasure. wedding. Yeah, yes. have a great time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just give us a ring anytime. That number is one eight five five four Bowtie. One more time, one eight five five four Bowtie. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. This is Dawn from Chicago. So how can we help you? I'm not a big fan of mayonnaise. Oh, you've got company. I don't like it either. I'm with you. I mean, sometimes it's necessary, like for tuna salad, just as a binder. But I was wondering if you could offer a suggestion to mayonnaise. Greek yogurt with some oil. How about that? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, or sour cream with some right. oil. Well, I mean, the other way to think about it is if you look around the world, nobody else is using mayonnaise except the Americans. <laughs> so, oh, and I mean, the French. Well, okay. But the fact of the matter is, though. there's a thousand recipes for dips that don't use mayonnaise. I mean, I was thinking just hummus. Avo- yeah, or eggplant oh. is used to dip. Oh, eggplant? Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. So Like baba ganoush. Yeah. Or beets, you know, roasted beets. You make a tzatziki or something out right. of that. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to do dips without mayonnaise. Just use those recipes. But if you're looking for the creaminess of mayonnaise, I think, yeah, yogurt or sour cream or creme fraiche. But if you want the flavor of mayonnaise, where it comes from is the oil, and it's usually, well, in a good mayonnaise, it's olive oil. But in like okay. a store-bought, it's a vegetable oil. So, And the oil gives mouthfeel as well. I have seen on the shelves like mayonnaise that uses like olive oil or actually I just saw one that used avocado oil. And I haven't tried it because I just got it the other day. Well, then, look, can so. I just say this whole oil thing's out of control? Okay, I'm sorry. I mean, there's like 50 <laughs> kinds of oils now. I know. But we now we can finally have oil again. When and I it's grew supposedly up, good for us. I'm very excited about it. vegetable oil. I know. And there was olive oil. I Those know. are your two choices. Now it's canola, corn oil. rice. Corn oil, I'm sorry. There's three choices. Corn oil, yes. Yeah. There you go. No, but there's cool oils like toasted sesame, pumpkin toasted oil. pumpkin seed, I know, I know. and pistachio. Hazelnut oil. Oh, my God. Yes. No, oil can add so much flavor. But at any rate, I think you, you just head down the international route when it comes to dips. And if you need that creamy element, you go for the dairy stuff. Okay. Thank you very much for your input. You're well, thank you, Don. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, we take a tour of Persian food with Yasmin Khan. She's the author of The Saffron Tales, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. 
my other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to talk to Yasmin Khan. She's the author of The Saffron Tales. She was born in London to Iranian and Pakistani parents, and she's been an active campaigner for human rights issues across the Middle East. For most of us, Iran is still a mystery, so I started by asking Yasmin to provide a tour of Tehran, including the people, the streets, and also the markets. So, um, you know, being the typical American, my idea of walking down the streets of Tehran is probably all wrong, and reading your book and some interviews with you, it turned out it was very wrong. So you spent a lot of time there. Could you just take us down the street and, and give us a, a street-level view of what we'd see and what we'd hear? I think Tehran just bustles with life. It's a really vibrant cosmopolitan city. And it's got all the you know exciting amenities that you'd find in such a place. So great restaurants, incredible art galleries... One of the things I love doing most when I'm there is going to visit one of the old food markets in Tajrish, which is an incredibly old uh, place, centuries old, in fact. And there you can kind of get lost winding through the, the bustling market stalls, selling kind of spices from saffron to dried limes to fresh produce, um, all the incredible, I don't know, pumpkins and, and peppers and aubergines and tomatoes. And, and then also around, you know, little little souk corners where you can collect some of the incredible kind of artifacts. You know, Iran has got such a rich artistic history as well that all of those things are depicted when you're walking around the street. But it's very modern. I think that's what I always say to people. I get the tube, jump into a great, you know, new sushi restaurant, and then maybe go and see some friends for some drinks. So it's very different, I think, to how it, it's generally perceived. The book is called Saffron Tales for Reason, I would assume. And so let's talk about saffron. You, you write, and I didn't, I think most Americans know very little about saffron, other than its color, probably. It's used for uh, medical reasons as well, depression, asthma, reproductive health, blood purification, aphrodisiac, etc. So talk to me about saffron from the Iranian culture. 
I think saffron probably, for me, is the most evocative of all Iranian spices. It um, has got a very special kind of place in the Iranian home. I think it's it, it, because of its availability, you know, it's only you can only pick the saffron crocuses. They only open up for around 11 to 14 days every year. And you harvest them by kind of picking three stamens from each crocus and drying them. And that becomes the saffron that we then we then use. So it you know it, its availability. It's a very scarce spice, and that has really given it a really special status. And Iran produces, I think you know estimations vary, but they say roughly around ninety percent of the world's saffron. And I was I was lucky enough to visit a saffron farm when I was in Iran. It was incredible just to see the reverence with which the farmers were treating the crocuses. And I, I had a really wonderful experience with the woman whose farm I was visiting, Mary. And she was telling me all these tales of the different ways that they use saffron. And uh, I'd recently separated from my partner at the time. And she insisted that she knew the perfect broken heart saffron uh, concoction. And she made me a beautiful small glass of warm milk that she'd infused with saffron and a little bit of honey. And yeah, it, it, it certainly warmed my heart. So give me two or three examples of how I might use it cooking, things that would make sense here in America? I think uh, one of the things that makes Iranian food very accessible is the fact that a lot of the the recipes, they might use a few ingredients we're unfamiliar with, but they use them in quite uh, a familiar context. So saffron, hands down, I think the best way to use it is to make saffron rice which is incredibly simple. It's just about kind of grinding down some saffron stems, infusing them with hot water so you get this real potent uh, red elixir, and then sprinkling that over your normal white steamed basmati rice. You know, with a bit of butter, that is probably one of my favorite dishes. So that's a really great way. The other way I like to use saffron is is with potatoes, which, you know, saffron and and roast potatoes are are probably another one of those classic combinations that just work really well. Again, it's just about grinding the saffron down, putting it in water. So we always do this in Iran so that that's how we prepare it. And, you know, putting your roast potatoes in the oven with some salt and olive oil. And again, just putting those saffron drops over it. Is there such a thing as fake saffron or lower quality? I mean, if I go to the supermarket and buy it, it's in a little glass vial or something. How do I know I'm getting the real thing and how do I know I'm getting quality or is it all the same? Do you know what? You've touched on a subject very close to my heart. (laughs) Um, You see so much fake saffron advertised. I mean, it's really common in like a farmer's markets even. Quite often safflower is labeled as saffron. So a lot of people, when they go to, on maybe like holidays to, to various bits of the world, think that they're coming back with, with, with saffron, but it's actually safflower. Um, my tips for buying good saffron, whether you're in a supermarket or at a market stall, is that the strands should be the deepest red possible. So it, it's not to say that saffron that's kind of an orange color is inferior but it just won't have as an intense a taste and I don't think you know given that it is such an expensive spice you really want to be getting your bang for your buck so to speak so go for really thin stamens that are a deep deep crimson you know that just reinforces my suspicious nature thank you (laughs) I always I always wondered about that uh let's do some some foods some meals so breakfast uh Breakfast is quite different in Iran. So, and some of these things sound great. Scrambled eggs with feta and dill, I, I want to do tomorrow. <laughs> uh, but, but what are some of the other things you would have for breakfast? Yeah, well, breakfast in Iran is is a really celebrated event. So you some some families that I visited would even set some of the table for breakfast before they went to bed because there were so many different aspects of the table that they wanted to put together. And I love that, the fact that, I mean, again, you know how we lead our lives in the West. It's 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 so rushed, and and breakfast isn't something that we normally would would spend a lot of time on. But there in Iran, you know, they will get up super early and and really lay a beautiful table with dried fruits, um, nuts, um, uh, different kinds of breads. One of the things that I think is is most um, exciting for me about the Persian breakfast table is all their incredible jams. They do 
vegetable jams, actually, things like carrot and cardamom and rose water, which I really mm. recommend. This is my one tip I always tell people in the book. Mm. If you want a, an easy, accessible Persian recipe, go for that because it's, you can have it ready in 30 minutes and it, 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 it's very, very unique. So this kind of jam and toast and bread and butter combination is very popular. Um, and as with all Iranian food, there is a real use of dried fruit and nuts in main courses. That's one of the defining features of Iranian food. And one of the loveliest recipes I, I, I learned when I was traveling through Iran was this date and cinnamon omelet, which is just kind of dates browned off in a little butter. So they go all soft and, and caramelized, um, sprinkled with cinnamon and then with, you know, with eggs beaten over them. And it's just so simple, ready in, you know, five to 10 minutes and a great mm. way to start your day. Y yogurt is used. It's flavored. It's used as a sauce very often. Uh, here in America, it's eaten out of a cup with some jam in it or something. <laughs> so so how do you think of yogurt and, and how do you use yogurt? It's such a different ingredient. You think about it very differently than we do. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, <laughs> Iran's a very hot country. So one of the reasons I think yogurt has become so prevalent in its cuisine is because of its intrinsic cooling properties. Many of the countries in the Middle East use um, yogurt both not only in kind of savory cooking, but also as a kind of drink. So mixing it with water and mint, which, you know, when it's 40 degrees on a hot day in Tehran, it's just actually the, the perfect thing that you need. Um, but in Iran, we always serve a bit of yogurt with, with the main meal. And, and, and not only do we serve yogurt plain, but also sometimes we mix herbs in it. Maybe it could be mint or some dill. Um, we also use vegetables often, kind of we call them baranis, so mixed yogurt and vegetables, kind of in between a salad and a dip. And you can make these with roasted beetroots or perhaps kind of spinach. And I, I would go so far as to say that, you know, an Iranian table isn't complete without a yogurt in some form as an accompaniment. Uh, caramelized onions. North Africa, the Middle East, is just a staple, and it's uh, it's used in lots of different recipes. Uh, you know, bread filling, part of lots of other recipes. Could you just talk to me about that? Uh, how do you do it, and how do you use it? Yeah, caramelized onions, I think, is my biggest culinary tip for anybody starting out cooking Persian food. You know, the transformation that happens when you're cooking an onion um, very, very slowly is, is dramatic. It goes from being uh, a separate ingredient to almost like a base note of a dish. And the patience that's involved in slowly caramelizing onions isn't something that many of us are kind of used to in our traditional kind of cooking in the West. But um, if you take the time, I can guarantee that your dish will be elevated. Uh, let's talk about sour. That's not mm -hmm. something. How do you we know feel about sour? About. I, well, I'm kind of a sour person, but no, I, I love <laughs> sour and I like bitter, and I think they're really important uh, flavor balancers. And, and you talk about a sour chicken curry or sour yogurt; it's very much part of Persian cooking. Not so much here. D talk to me about sour. Sell me on sour. Yeah, it isn't a, a taste that we we tend to use in in the UK or uh, I know in the States, but actually in Iranian food, sweet and sour, I would say, is the dominant flavor. It's it's a bit like the Italians have the you know agrodolce. It's it's that very mm -hmm. subtle use of a slight sharpness tempered with some sweetness. And in Iran, what we use, we use a lot of citrus to give that. We use limes and um, sour oranges, Seville oranges, but also pomegranate molasses, uh, grape molasses, um, different kinds of fruit, basically. Um, and, and even one of the most common things in, in a Persian dish is to kind of mix fruits in with main courses. And depending on, on the dish, you can decide whether that's going to veer more towards the sweet part of the spectrum or the sour? Um, pomegranates, obviously central, not so much here. Uh, pomegranate seeds, pomegranate molasses, which I made fun of for 30 years and now I can't live without. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a convert. I just talked to me, what, pomegranates obviously are, there are a lot of them in the winter. What do you do with them? Why are they so important? Yeah. If there was a national 
ingredient of Iran, I'm very clear that it would be the pomegranate. And I think one of the reasons that they've acquired such a special status in Iran is for the exact reason that you mentioned. I mean, we have this fruit that appears in the midst of winter when, you know, very little, very little else is growing. And not only is it delicious, but it um, is also ruby red. You know, it kind of looks, it kind of glistens with its little jewels. And in Iran, um, ancient folklore has given the, the pomegranate, you know, elevated status. According to Iranian mythology, the hero warrior Asfandiar um, ate pomegranates and then became invincible. And all the ancient Zoroastrian temples in Iran were lined with pomegranate trees, which it was claimed would give, you know, the whoever ate them eternal life. So very, very much celebrated. And in Iran, our second biggest festival of the year is the winter solstice. And uh, on that night, it's very common for people to stay awake all night and you know, recite poetry and all the, all the very artistic things that Iranians tend to do uh, on their festivals. And also eat red fruit and, and pomegranates are, are the star of the show there. What I love about pomegranates is that they're so versatile and pomegranate molasses can be used in so many different ways. What makes pomegranate molasses such a wonderful ingredient to cook with is that you can use it on everything, you know, I've as well as using it in Persian stews, um, I use it in salad dressings. You know, if I'm making a stir fry, I often put it in with, you know, the soy sauce. It's delicious on ice cream. It's great with yogurts. It, again, anytime you want that slight sweet sour tang to any dish i think it can really impart it in a very unique way you know if i travel um i'm always looking for something i can't find somewhere else something unique so you you know tehran obviously intimately so what give me an experience you've had there that would just for you summarize how different it is and how wonderful it is something personal that, that happens so in iran we have a real culture of sharing food and one of the most wonderful experiences I had as I was traveling through Iran for this book, because obviously I was traveling, you know, 3000 kilometers up and down the country, is I would be on, on buses or on trains and the person next to me or the person in front of me would maybe get out a, a big bag of, of oranges and just start peeling off the segments and then just offering it around to everybody. And there was something so intimate about that experience but it was almost this um recognition that yeah we we might not know each other but we're two people we're we're traveling on the same road um, literally and metaphorically and i want to acknowledge that you're here and and share with uh, you what i have and that's a very unique iranian experience that i've not experienced anywhere else and i think it's one of the most powerful things food can do it's those shared experiences those intimate moments that we have with each other when we're offering each other food and when we're tasting each other's food That was Yasmin Khan. She's author of The Saffron Tales. You know, food as hospitality goes back to the beginning of recorded history. In ancient Greece, the Stoics regarded hospitality as a duty demanded by Zeus himself. In India, one often hears the expression, the guest is God. And in Judaism, the ritual of hospitality, of course, goes back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And as most of us probably know, in Christmas Eve in London, the tradition of wassailing demanded that the rich give to the less wealthy carolers who went house to house looking for figgy pudding. In Persia, food and hospitality are still very close friends, proving that human history still has its finer moments. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Mill Street Radio. Right now, it's time to speak with our regular contributor, Dr. Aaron Carroll, about why avoiding peanuts in your child's diet may not be a good thing. Welcome back to Milk Street. Always great to be here. So what pile of conventional wisdom are you going to attack this week? I think we're going to talk about peanuts and uh, everyone's fear of how they should be exposed to them as babies and whether they're going to get allergies. So what do you have to say? It's, it's one of those fascinating things because, you know, back in like 2000, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out guidelines trying to prevent allergies. And they actually cautioned mothers they should avoid certain foods even while they were pregnant, um, even while they were breastfeeding, and that babies should not be exposed to certain foods. Peanuts were one of the things they said not till three years of age. Hmm. There's never been good evidence to support that kind of thing. About a year ago, a group 
put together a very large randomized controlled trial, a really well-designed study where they actually randomized like 600 and some children when they were babies to either avoid peanuts or actually be fed peanut protein starting at about six months of age and then going until I think about five years. And what they found was that the kids who were exposed to peanut protein while they were young developed significantly fewer peanut allergies than the kids who were actually kept away from it. And even when they looked at the subgroup of kids who were already sensitive to peanuts, in other words, you had a concern already that they might be at even higher risk for developing an allergy, those kids were even less likely to develop a peanut allergy if we exposed them to peanuts when they were very young than if you took a normal kid and you didn't let them see peanuts until they were three years of age. So it turned all that wisdom on its head. And you know, just recently, the NIH and an expert panel released new guidelines actually recommending that we start exposing babies to peanut protein in their mm. formula or, or outside of it at very young ages, you know, six months and perhaps even earlier if we think they're at very high risk for an allergy. Of course, they should talk to their doctor before doing any of that, but it really turns a lot of the, the conventional wisdom on its head about avoiding things in order not to get allergic to them. Is it actually true statistically that a higher percentage of children in the United States have food allergies than, let's say, a generation or two ago. Do we actually know the answer to that? We think so, but it's probably not as high as you see in some lay press or some you know more popular things. Because, of course, some of that could be real diagnoses, that we're actually seeing more children with real allergies. Some of that is that there's become so much more awareness in the last decade or right. so that people are starting to to notice things where they didn't before. And the third is that we're seeing a broadening sometimes of what we will call an allergy. You know, in the past, it might have been you have to have anaphylaxis or trouble breathing. But now it could be, well, I feel a little funny. And so a little of it is probably real. And then some of it is also changes in the way we've actually been diagnosing it. The other question I have is I've talked to people who say that our gut bacteria, because we're not ingesting bacteria the way we used to from farms, for example, means we're more susceptible to allergies. For example, I think one study said the Amish uh, children don't have as many allergies as other kids because their mothers, while pregnant, are walking around barns. Is there any truth to that? There is. and that, Well, there, people think there is. The, the fancy word for what you just described is what we would call the hygiene hypothesis, the, the idea that as we have made the environment cleaner and more sterile, as our body has less to fight in the outside world, it sometimes turns inward, that we wind up right. attacking ourselves in such a way that, that you know that's what allergies are. We're overreacting to stimuli. Now, of course, nobody's going to suggest that we start living in filth or exposing us to, to really harmful bacteria. But there is this idea that if, if we're, you know, we're meant to be exposed to things, that's the natural order. And our bodies develop ways to recognize what is regular and what is good and what is not. And while allergies are still likely to occur, it is possible, especially in this case, it seems very likely that if we try too hard to keep things away from people when they're very young and everything is developing, it may cause even more problems later in life than if we let them be exposed. So if you're pregnant, would you recommend that you should include peanuts in your diet or you recommend you go see your doctor first? Everyone... So the answer always has to be you should talk to your doctor first. But I think we're going to see, uh, I think we'll probably start seeing more of a relaxing of all of this kind of thing. That You know, certainly if somebody was allergic to peanuts, they shouldn't be eating peanuts when they're pregnant. But for people who are not allergic, there, there seems to be no reason to avoid it. And a growing body of evidence that says, you know, sometimes this exposure, certainly for babies and perhaps even for pregnant moms, we'll have to keep an eye on that research. You know, doing regular natural things, exposing yourself to foods is not a terrible thing. It may actually be a beneficial one. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much. Uh, I've learned a lot, and uh, I can have peanuts with my old-fashioned tonight. Thank you. Anytime. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, a regular guest on our show, also writer for the Upshot column in the New York Times. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, also author of Home Cooking 101. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. 
And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Christopher Kimball's Mill Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring. That number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. By the way, our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, as well as at our own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. Sarah, how are you? Are you ready to take some calls? Chris, I sure am. I'm prepared. I knew the answer to that question. Hello, welcome to Milk Street. It's Chris and Sarah. Who do we have on the line? Ellen from Syracuse, New York. Oh, hi, Ellen. What's your question? I recently discovered seaweed salad that they serve at the sushi restaurants. I can't really find a recipe to perhaps replicate that at home without having to spend all the money at the restaurants every time I crave it, which is a lot now. Oh, my goodness. I know how that is. Do you have a place where you can buy dried seaweed? Yes, I do. There's like... A Whole Foods, but there's also a couple of Asian markets Oh, as well. wonderful. Go to the source, which means you'll get other good ingredients. So what you need to do is yep. take that seaweed in a large bowl and cover it with cold water and let it soak for about 10 to 15 minutes or until the seaweed mm. is soft. You know, you've rehydrated it. And then you need to squeeze it out. And you can either slice it up. Uh, the stuff you get in the Japanese restaurants is finely chiffonade, right? It's like shredded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yep. then you can stack them like a deck of cards, roll them up like a cigar, and then cross country, across uh, country. Cross, <laughs> listen to me. Oh, my God, I think I need a vacation. On the road again. <laughs> Here we are. And then slice yeah. across them into thin strips. And then toss them with the usual suspects. I mean, this probably is what you're getting. Is rice vinegar, sesame oil, a little bit of sugar and salt, and some toasted sesame seeds, and maybe a little bit of soy sauce as well. Although actually, that's quite salty, so you mm-hmm. probably won't need it. What do you think? Does that sound like the usual uh, suspects? Yeah, it does. I have been looking for the ingredients, but I guess I was thrown off because when I looked at the seaweed, the seaweed was so large, and like you said, at the restaurant, it is shredded. It is sliced thinner, and yeah. so I didn't know if it was the right product. So it definitely makes sense when you say to like soak it and then cut it because then it'll look sort of like the stuff that they have in the restaurant. So, yeah, soak it, squeeze it because you don't want to water down your dressing. Mm-hmm. And then do that thing where you shred it and then toss it with those ingredients, rice, vinegar, sesame oil, sugar, 
maybe a little bit of salt or soy if you think it needs any uh, salt, and mm-hmm. then some toasted sesame and, seeds. And Sarah got to say the word chiffonade. Yeah. It I just did. brings joy <laughs> to her soul. This is great, though. Thank you so much. I've been scouring the internet, and what you've given me is really great because I can kind of play around with the sauce to get it to where I of need Of course. It One caveat about the sesame oil. It's uh, very perishable, yeah. the toasted stuff, so make sure you keep it in the fridge. And if it gets cloudy, which it will, okay. just pull it out, let it come to room temp, you know, or just melt enough so you can get what you need. And don't overdo it because it can overwhelm. It's very strong. It's yeah. toasted sesame, okay. Yes, right? yes, yeah, yeah the dark stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right, Ellen. Take All care. Right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just give us a ring anytime. That number is one eight five five four bowtie One more time, one eight five five four bowtie You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. It's Chris and Sarah. Who's calling? Hi, this is Lori. I'm in Maryland. Hi, Lori from Maryland. How can we help you? Well, I like to put fiber in my waffles or my banana bread or something, and I'm walking through the grocery aisles, and I see wheat germ in the cereal aisle and wheat bran in the baking aisle, and I don't know the difference. Well, the bran is the outer husk, which has, if you want, you know, uh, roughage. Uh, the germ is is the inside, which is much more perishable. Yeah, actually, it, you should keep it in the fridge because yeah, it'll go rancid. It'll go rancid quickly, and uh, usually I buy toasted wheat germ, which I wow. use in— Actually, I have a whole wheat soda bread recipe, which I love with toasted wheat germ. So if you want fiber, go for the bran. The wheat germ is probably going to give you the flavor. They're both very good for you, though. So, you know, from that other point of view, not a bad idea to use both of them. You're not going to pull nutritionist on me. Oh, no, no, I won't do that. I (laughs) will not do that. No, no, no. no. I did want to point out that there's also all those dried fruits that are wonderful, too, just to throw that out. For what? Fiber. (laughs) It's just nice to get all that good stuff in there. And they're yummy. All right. Sarah Malta representing the Dried Fruit Institute of I America. know, really, really. Yeah, so I, I would get toasted wheat germ, but keep it in the fridge because yes, it'll absolutely. go bad very quickly. And toasted yeah. is cool. I bet you that's really tasty. It is very tasty. Yeah. And matter of fact, any whole wheat flour you should keep in the fridge. I know yeah. that, but I didn't so. know you could get toasted wheat germ. That's great. Did that answer your question, sort of? Yes, thank you okay. guys so much. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, okay, our, our pleasure. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk with Lior Lev Sarkaz, an Israel-born chef and spice master, also author of two books, The Art of Blending and The Spice Companion. If you want a skillet steak to taste just like barbecue, Lior is just the guy to ask. So I've read uh, you talk about how many different spices or ingredients you use for a blend. I think nine, nine ingredients is on the low end, 23 on the high end. If you have 15 or 20 ingredients in a blend, does it, I guess like perfume, right? I mean, does it get to the point of no return, that it's so complex that it's hard to pick out the advantage of those last five ingredients? Or do you think a 23-ingredient blend, you know, makes makes a lot of sense to you? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, my goal is not to create over-the-top sophisticated and complex blend. The idea is to just make a great blend and... I could do it with nine, which is the case, or 10 or 12. I usually have two or three really main components, and the other ones play a secondary role where they tone down something, they enhance another element. And I often take even these recipes that I've been doing for over 10 years now, and just for fun, remove two or three components out of them to see if it still really matters. It does. Would somebody notice it? Um, I'm not sure. I think it also has to do with the physics of of the blend, how they kind of attach to each other and their texture, which is important also. Let's start with salt and pepper. Every recipe says salt and pepper, yet salt is a very sophisticated ingredient that enhances flavors, it reduces bitterness. There are lots of different kinds of salt. So from your perspective, you know, most home cooks don't think about salt in terms of different styles and, and its sort of magical properties. How do you think about salt? How do you think about different types of salt or how do you use salt? I uh, often joke that I think there should be a ban to that famous phrase in recipes that says season with salt and pepper. Right. I would like for it to be replaced with the word season with sodium and heat. Hmm. Uh, I think salt and sodium are important. Uh, but you could deliver sodium 
A, by various different salts, of course, but fish sauce or, or capers or anchovies or different applications, just because we don't all cook the same. One would prefer maybe gray salt to fine crystal salt or, or fleur de sel versus molden. I think it's really about um, the home cook identifying what's their style of cooking. You have to try and educate yourself by uh, getting a little, uh, a few samples of various salts, tasting them. Well, what are some of the peppers people should start to know about now beyond, you know, telecherry, for example? Sure. So I think um, it's important to, you know, explore um, peppercorns to begin with. To say, you know, just saying black peppercorn doesn't mean much. Is it um, Indian, Indonesian, Cambodian? All very different in size and flavor. Uh, and as I said earlier, in terms of pepper, maybe sometimes you want to give your pepper meal a break and um, get some uh, things like uh, an Aleppo, which is actually a, a, a bell pepper of some sort of, or a chili to some extent, and you gain uh, texture because of the, the flakes. You gain notes of, of orange and citrus and some sweetness and acidity, uh, all of that in one chili flake type Aleppo or an Urfa from the south of Turkey uh, with great smoky notes and all of the Mexican varieties. So I think that having a, a couple of, of heat component handy in a kitchen is, is a great thing. Let's go through a few items that are things that are on the cusp of being used more and more in the American kitchen and just quickly describe them and why you might want to know about them. Cardamom, green and white cardamom, that's something mm -hmm. that's being used more and more. So green cardamom, fairly familiar. Um, however, most people always see it in a ground format. The, the pod itself is fantastic, both the shell and the seeds inside. I use both. I think that um, for many years it was reserved mainly for the baked goods or sweets. It is a fantastic ingredient for savory dishes that should be explored. If you want to break out the seeds and sprinkle them into a salad, they add a great sweetness and acidity. Uh, do not discard the, the shell. You could grind it or you can uh, infuse it into a, a broth or a stock or a chicken soup. They'll really add a, a fantastic uh, level of complexity. Uh, chipotle peppers. Everyone knows about them, buys them in the small cans. What do you think about them? How would you use them? I think, um, again, a couple of types of chipotles, you know, the, the brown or the red. I think it's an amazing ingredient. Not only it delivers heat, but it has a smoky factor since those are uh, smoke-dried uh, jalapenos, basically. And I found some sweet notes to it even and some acidic notes to it. Um, and, and it's a great complex heat element in a dish, uh, not to mention the uh, powder form that acts also a little bit like a binding agent. If you were to finish a sauce or a stew mm. or something, uh, will add definitely to it. I, I was reading a cookbook recently, and I think about a third of the recipes called for fenugreek, <laughs> which I have never used. So, so tell me, <laughs> why should I care about fenugreek? I think you should care about fenugreek the same way you should care about spices generally. Fenugreek should be used because it adds a great kind of slightly fermented oniony notes to dishes whether you use the whole seeds or the ground seeds. And an element that has yet to even be explored uh, is fenugreek leaves that are phenomenal and offer this kind of like a bitter green flavor to them. I hope that with time they will be embraced in more and more kitchens. Sichuan pepper, why should we know about that? <laughs> I think that Sichuan and its cousin, the Sancho from Japan, People should be aware of them because it's another way of introducing heat to a dish, which we agreed is important. They also offer a sort of a numbness uh, in a very good way where it blocks certain elements in our, on some of our taste bud, if you will, and highlights some other ones. The classic example would be eating an avocado as is and uh, doing that same test after eating a Szechuan or Sancho pepper and all of a sudden it's 10 times more sweet um, and, fr mm. and fruity because we block. It's part of the reason that I stopped using sugar in my uh, coffee and tea is thanks to Sancho and Szechuan because I realized that I, I'm basically, I could recreate a sweet sensation by using different seasoning types, Szechuan, Sancho, ginger, and so on. 
I'm not saying that you should omit completely sugar from your cookies, but I think if you use things like Szechuan, you will be able to reduce the amount of sugar needed without affecting, of course, the texture. Okay, let's move on to how you think about pairing spices with foods. Let's start with like a chicken tagine, okay, Uh, where they would use ginger, cumin, turmeric. How would you think about a chicken if you're going to braise a chicken? What what are the kinds of things that go through your mind in trying to come up with a blend? Or if you're at home, the spices you might pick off the shelf? Sure. So a couple of kind of direction. I mean, uh, I live in an apartment in New York, and I sadly do not own a grill. I do come from the Middle East, and I do like to grill. So my kind of solution oftentimes to mimic a grilling sensation would go to elements that have some sort of a a smoky note to them. So whether I uh, season my uh, chicken with a little bit of chipotle that we mentioned earlier, some Spanish pimenton, the smoked paprika, um, and then just pan sear them or, or roast them in the oven, that's an example of how I can create a great smoky grilled sensation. Sometimes I would like for my chicken to be more of a kind of a gamey or more of a savory note, and chicken could be a fairly mild. I would use elements such as cumin that deliver that kind of a more savory, gamey note to a very simple chicken thigh or chicken breast. And then if I pair them with um, some dried fruits for a tagine, I would want to you know, pair also some floral elements type ginger and cardamom and clove and, and allspice that will create this great fragrant and really kind of relate to the tagine tea. You, you mentioned sumac, and I, I forgot to mention that. That's that's all over the place now. Could you just talk about what it tastes like and when you might use sumac? Sure. Sumac, uh, a berry, uh, grows actually also uh, domestically in the U.S. However, quite uh, most of it is poisonous. It's a little berry that has a reddish burgundy color. What it mainly offers are great sour and tart and acidic notes, aside from the the beautiful color. I call it often the Middle Eastern vinegar powder. I think Mm. that acidity is one of the other main components, aside from heat and sodium, both for curing, preserving, but also just um, to enhance flavor, type lemon juice. And so sumac is that spice that you could sprinkle in a salad or in a dressing and deliver acidity uh, instead of using a citrus, uh, plus the fact that it doesn't go away. Uh, it will not fade out over time. Um, let's talk about quality. Uh, years ago, I was in Morocco across the Atlas Mountains and bought a bunch of uh, herbs and spices locally, uh, and uh, you know, it blew me away. I mean, it was... 10 times better than anything else I'd ever had. I mean, completely changed the cooking. So what does a home cook do? I think the first thing to do is really to open the jar of spices that you have at home, including your salt shaker and pepper meal, and just taste and smell the content so that you can record that. And then the next time when you do see that same spice by a different vendor or brand, you have something to refer to. There are no more excuses saying that in middle America we cannot find sumac. It is not true. If you don't have it there, uh, somebody will ship it to you. I also encourage people to just go to their local store and talk to that store owner. And you'd be surprised. Their idea is to sell you something. And if there's enough demand, they will carry it. Okay, everyone says spices are good for six months. Is there any time frame that's useful or not? I invite people that wherever it is that you purchase... The day you bring it into your kitchen, take a pen and somewhere on the label, or if you need to add an additional label, just add one year to that date of purchase. By the time an average person purchases spice at the local store, they're at least eight to nine months old already. And I guess the main thing is just to use them as often as possible. That was Lior Lev Sarkaz. He's chef and spice master, also owner of La Boite Biscuits and Spices, and author of The Spice Companion. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to cook and finish pasta in sauce. So if you're serving pasta with a sauce, we'd like to remove the pasta from the boiling water about two minutes before it's done or al dente. We drain it, we add it to the sauce in the skillet, 
and then we cook it until it is finally properly cooked. Now this way, the pasta will absorb a lot of the sauce, not just be coated by it. We also like to reserve a cup or so of the pasta water, that's the cooking water, and you can add that to the skillet if the sauce becomes a little bit too thick. By the way, you could also finish your pasta with pesto and a bit of added cooking water. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You know, the greatest work of ancient Persian fiction is, of course, the Arabian Nights. Yet the modern reader might be surprised that women are often depicted as much smarter and much more cunning than the men. For example, in Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, the plot is foiled by Ali Baba's loyal slave, Morgiana. She dispatches the murderous thieves using her own initiative. But more to the point, the main character in these tales is, of course, Scheherazade. She recounts a thousand and one tales to save the young women of the kingdom from certain death. Each night, the vengeful king marries a new virgin and then has her executed in the morning. But through Scheherazade's masterful storytelling, the king abandons the slaughter after a thousand and one nights. You know, history is often full of surprises. Scheherazade is the very model of the modern sage and woman. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can download each week's recipe. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugart. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.